Hi, thanks everyone for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. We have a great episode. Uh, today we have Dr. David Nelson uh, on the show to talk about Eberhard Jungel, uh, a German theologian um, who passed away about a month ago. And uh, this episode is really just dedicated to uh, his life and thought. Um, a theologian who's probably, and we'll get into a little probably much more known in, in perhaps Germany than in the, the English-speaking world. Um, and so uh, for those curious who maybe come across that name before, this episode will definitely uh, outline some of his major ideas and hopefully give you give our listeners a, uh, more of a familiarity with him. So, but Dr. Nelson's joining us, and uh, Dr. Nelson has done a lot of work on Jungle. He received his PhD from Aberdeen University, where he studied under John Webster, uh, he, uh, from, as of 2022, he will be the director of Baylor University Press, and Dr. Nelson serves as senior acquisitions editor for Baker Academic and Brazos Press, and is editor of Lutheran Forum USA. He has co, he has authored, edited, and contributed to several books, including several on Jungle, uh, the Guide to, Guide to the Perplexed series. He wrote the entry on Jungel, as well as the book, The Interruptive Word, Eberhard Jungel, on the sacramental structure of God's relation to the world. And he's also taught courses at Institute of Lutheran Theology over the course of many years. And that's where I was grateful to have uh, met and studied and taken a course under Dr. Nelson, who we'll call Dave from now on. So, um, so welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Delighted to be here to talk about Eberhard Jungel. Yeah. And congratulations on your new position. So that's exciting. And um, we'll just Thank roll you. right in. Uh, so Jungel is not exactly a household name. Uh, of course, many theologians are often not household names, <laughs> most sure. of them. But uh, this one, especially Jungel, uh, outside of maybe certain circles who have really uh, intentionally taken the time to read him, uh, like you have, he's he, he's probably much more unknown. Uh, he's it's not like a Paul Tillich or a Rudolf Boltmann or a Karl Barth, for instance. But nevertheless, he's an important theologian, um, especially in the time around and after, of course, the same time as Tillich, Barth, and Boltmann. And like those theologians we mentioned, he's also German. So, and I'm curious, and I think you touched a little upon this in your writing of him, but. Is this a symptom, would you say, of a gulf that we maybe see between the Anglosphere and I guess what would be called the Germanosphere or the, the Teutonic sphere <laughs> between those two spheres? Is there a gulf really there? Have you noticed? I think that's right. I think that it's a widening gulf. Um, I think that uh, there's a sense in which theology in uh, the, nor the North America and the Anglosphere, especially in North America, but also in Germany, seems to be running on uh, two different tracks right now. The interests are different. 
um, in theology in the Anglosphere compared to theology on the continent right now, the role of theology in contemporary society, the role of the church in society, of course, um, in, uh, the, on the continent in Europe, um, there's a trend towards secularization that is a few steps ahead of where things are, um, especially here in North America. I mean, certainly the United Kingdom is kind of a halfway point between um, Europe and North America when it comes to secularization. So I think that has a lot to do with it. I think the, as you started to ask the question, you made the observation that Jungle is perhaps less well known than some of his contemporaries and certainly um, compared to earlier theologians like Bart Tillich and Boltmann. And part of that is because of the pace of translation. Um, translations of Jungle's work, uh, works have just not been accelerated as quickly as some other uh, contemporaneous and earlier thinkers. But there's also with Jungle, I mean, he really has four major monographs and a lot of short works. When you compare his output to someone like um, Jürgen Moltmann, who was a contemporary, Moltmann wrote tons of monographs. And a lot of those monographs were written at a level where they were meant to reach both academics and also pastors, whereas Jungle wrote works that were mainly uh, scholarly monographs. You compare him to someone, say, like Wolfhart Pannenberg, um, who wrote a major systematic theology, and that was a fairly easy decision for a North American press to take that on, mm -hmm. take on a translation. So I think the kinds of books that Jungle wrote throughout his career um, maybe um, softened the need to translate compared, compared to some others. There are some really good things available of Jungle's in, in English, but a lot of good stuff that's left untranslated. And at this point, it's kind of difficult to see new translations underway because he just passed away. Um, there's a sense where in Germany, his star has already uh, sort of started to eclipse. It's kind of going, you know, by the wayside, simply because, you know, in theology, time moves on, the issues mm -hmm. are different. And, uh, and, and one has one say and then moves on. And there's a sense where he's already moved on from the scene over there. So the question of what will happen here to his works um, re remains uh, to be seen. Right. Well, I like how you said theology moves on is so on point, but also Jungle in some sense, and we'll get into it later, but I know kind of in some of your critique of them, in some ways he never moved on from some things as well. Um, but so, and, and I'm curious, because I know you've, you've, you've done more international study uh, definitely than I have. And, and, I, and I wonder how you said that the interests are different kind of between those two spheres is, um, is there like an example maybe of what interests, like, I, I know you said secularization is a factor between in the Gulf, between uh, the German, Germanic and English speaking worlds, but also are there implications of maybe that secularization for how theology, for the interests in theology, is there any way that plays out in Germany than maybe UK or definitely the US? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I and and it's one I don't fully know the answer to, Drew. Sure. I think that that I, what I would say in answer to that question is that in Europe, having lived over there and also knowing a, a bit about the the scene in theology in Europe, we lived there for a year and kind of experienced firsthand the role of the church in society. Mm -hmm. And where we lived, at least, the church 
didn't really have a role in society, as it were. It was an institution, an older institution. It's a very visually, um, if you if you drive around Europe, you still see towns, villages right. that are they revolve around the church, and yet uh, drop in on a Sunday morning service. More often than not, out in the villages you won't even find a service going on because what they tend to do, especially in Protestant Europe is group the churches together mm -hmm. and you have a, a, like a six point parish where one pastor just moves and some of the people move with them from village to village Sunday after Sunday. Wow. Um, the, the signs then are still there that the church one at one point in its history had a huge significance in the daily lives of European citizens. But in actual practice, most citizens in Europe go about their lives as if um, the, the church and Christianity doesn't really have much of a say in what they do. Hmm. You, you wrote about this, interestingly. Um, a, a good portion of his argument in his famous book, God is the Mystery of the World, is devoted to what he calls the worldly, this is a technical kind of funky term, but he calls it the worldly non-necessity of God. And what he means by that is, how do we understand God when in the general course of the world, normal people don't turn to the idea of God as anything that is helpful to them? to go about their daily lives. Sure. And he wrestled with that and it became a pretty significant component of his hermeneutical theology. He goes on to argue that God is actually more than necessary, a surplus of meaning to the world. So for those who um, encounter the gospel, they encounter it as something that is even greater than all the possibilities that the world has to offer. But to the average, a European citizen, there's a sense in which the the possibilities of religion and then the church and Christianity are kind of exhausted. They've run out. I think that we're in a different spot here um, in in the states. Recent studies have actually. I'll speak specifically to the United States rather than the Anglosphere more generically, because as we both know, there are different parts of the Anglosphere that are on a different level when it comes to these questions. Here in the United States, it seems that, that actually religion and, and, and faith and Christianity remain um, very important influences in the daily lives of many, many people. Sure, there have been lots of studies in the last two decades or so about the rise of the so-called nuns who don't really have a faith, but even studies that have been built on top of that, popular level studies that have actually shown that for those who claim not to have an affiliation with institutionalized Christianity, there are deep wells of spirituality from which they draw from. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very different scenario here, here in our country than uh, certainly continental Europe, where for many folks, they can go about their daily lives as if God. And it's never a thought, uh, even vaguely spiritual. Um, yeah. So, so, and I like the more than necessary. I think that might be the title of our episode. Sometimes I always like to pick All right. something that's spoken during the episode. Uh, I, I like, I let, I let the titles come to, come to me. So <laughs> more than necessary. Um, well, no, thanks for, for that. And I mean, it sounds like Jungle was, I mean, not only did was he writing on biblical studies and theology, but he he, he wrote in to his contemporary to his time, 
Very uh, much so. Yeah. Uh, so uh, now before we get into his life and thought and in what his contributions were and what uh, what they may have been, um, what are, if you could pick two, what are two reasons for why people, I mean, I guess, especially for people who are already into studying theology, but why should people check Jungle out? Um, what are, you know, two reasons why you'd say he is important, if you could sum it up, I guess, into two reasons to study or read him? Sure. Well, one, one thing to say about Eberhard Jungle is that he rewards patient, careful reading. His theology is very difficult. It's actually quite beautiful in German. He was a master of the German language. He wrote many of his works like poetry. They, there's a lot of alliterations, a lot of clever turns of phrase and neologisms that mark his writings. A lot of those go missing in the English translation. And English Anglophone readers find his works to be very difficult, mainly because of the difficulties in translation. But the thoughts are brilliant. He had a lot of important things to say. And very often, they take a while to pick through and grasp. Um, I remember very vividly when my late doctoral supervisor asked me to write a book review of one of his books as my entrance paper for uh, studies at Aberdeen. And I read the book three times and couldn't make heads or tails of it. And it was only later after I'd read it a fourth and fifth time that I finally got what was going on. So he's not one for the faint of heart, but for those who spend time really getting into what he has to say, I think he rewards um, patient patient reading and gives a lot of uh, interesting insights on how to go about doing theology. I think the other thing I would say in answer to your question, maybe the second thing um, here, uh, why I would commend his work is also it's a bit of a double edged sword. So it's there's a positive and a negative aspect of it. I think, and this kind of goes back to the very first round of questions we discussed here, I think that Jungle, he he did indeed, um, try to find a way that theology speaks to the needs of his own time. Um, He saw theology as actually offering something significant to say in the world. He saw theology as a world full of possibilities, very famously. Um, growing up in the East Germany, in East Germany, he, he's, he said many years later that he found the church to be the one place in an atheistic society where one could hear the truth. Mm-hmm. Every place else surrounding him, he, he heard only lies and powers and principalities, and he heard truth in the context of, of, of the church and in the context of Christianity, and he wrote as if that really mattered. Mm-hmm. in the world what but a scary the, world to live i mean thankful that there was that refuge and that he found it but i'm sorry i cut you off but <laughs> no no i and 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 you're exactly right i mean what a great thing it was i mean some of the stories that he tells of his own upbringing mm-hmm. in that culture discovering theology in the context of that world it's fascinating stuff so then here's the negative it, it's not really a negative aspect just the other side of it is that means that his theology is kind of dated someone who whose development took place within the context of the ddr in the 1960s right Mm -hmm. that's late 50s 1960s 
as uh, the wall was erected in 1961. So this is before the emergence of the wall, but it was when Stalinism had fairly well settled itself upon Eastern Europe. Well, that's a different world than the right. world that we live in right now. And, and it amazes me that I belong to a generation. I mean, we always joke, like the students I teach, because I teach um, early high school and late middle school, I, I joke that, that that age range, are they don't know, uh, they have no reference to 9-11. They, they have no memory of it because they weren't even alive yet, which is weird yeah. for me to think about. But it's probably weirder for people older than me to think about me being born in the late 80s. I don't really have a memory of the Cold War. Sure. And um, I think it's kind of that, that kind of that fear is, or, or it's kind of just lost on maybe people my age. And I remember I didn't really, until I read, it was, uh, it was the, the private life of Chairman Mao, which was written by his personal yeah. physician. Like I didn't quite get why there was a red scare. Sure. It should have, it may have been exaggerated uh, in many instances. Um, but I get to the, the, the fear of not wanting to be that type of society with that totalitarian, totalitarian personality in charge. I totally get it after um, seeing some of just the, that and other just things I've read over the years, just the, the, the statistics and the numbers that do verify kind of the horror of, sure. of living under um, those regimes. Uh, so it's, these, these things have profound impacts upon us, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm a little older than you by about a decade. And mm -hmm. I very vividly remember growing up in the American South, and the world was composed of two different kinds of politic, and two different kinds of societies, right. there was liberty, and there was totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. Those were the two options. And we looked across the, the ocean and half a continent at those who lived in, in uh, the Soviet Union, the USSR back in the day, right? When I was right. growing up, that's what we looked at. And we saw uh, those human beings with a mixture of, of fear and sadness mm -hmm. at the same time. We, that's how the world was laid out. And now you're exactly right. My children, um, they don't even know 9-11 and that narrative because they didn't live through it. And that of course is a very different, that signifies a shift in the way that we understand the world. We look at things in a completely different way, even these days. And so then it, th this raises theological questions, right? If one is to do theological work that has a kind of political character to it, that, that addresses questions that are live and in the world at this point in time, it, it's, it's liable in one sense, we can't do theology otherwise, because anyone who does theology, we believe that theology isn't this sort of transcendent discourse that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on today. We, with Bart, want to read and do our theology with the newspaper in the other hand, sure. rightly so, but it just means that that it could pass away um, be before too long. So now when I read Jungel, I'm fascinated, ever fascinated with what he had to say and with what he did. But I also worry that there are aspects of the way he understood theology's role in the world that uh, have slipped from us a bit, just because it's not that they don't have any significance. It just means we have to work a little harder to make uh, a translation from the situation that he was in to today. Wow. Well, um, now I, I, you probably spoke a lot to it already, but I mean, 
kind of getting a little autobiographical. What uh, what led to your interest in uh, Yongle? Why you why did you end up studying him? Sure, I I can tell this story. It actually was an accident of history. Um, what one could call it providence. Some of the if, best uh, things are so. <laughs> this is true, right? <laughs> Um, well, what happened? I'll tell the story because it's kind of a funny one, um, because it was actually, gosh, uh, 18 years ago from this coming week, um, I drove over from Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from, and I was living at the time, to Atlanta, Georgia, for the uh, meeting of the American Academy of Religion. And uh, that is actually coming up for me this coming week is when the AAR meets. And there in 2003, I was driving across and I was going to meet my uh, a supervisor um, for the first time in person right before the meetings. We were driving over from Birmingham to Atlanta. I was going to get out of the car. My friend was driving me and go meet my future doctoral supervisor. I was excited. I was very green. I was naive but I was really eager to go meet with John Webster and to talk about the possibility of studying theology with him. He had already agreed in principle uh, to be my doctoral supervisor. I had not applied yet, but we were going to walk through those steps together. And when I got in the car with my buddy, who's driving me across to meet with him, he says, hey, what are you going to do when he asks you what you want to study with him in Aberdeen? And Andrew, I believe it or not, had not actually thought at all about that question. Mm -hmm. So I panicked, um, probably said a few choice words. And then immediately at this point, we're at the Georgia state line. So, you know, there's like an hour and 20 minutes left before I meet this guy. And I said, well, I better come up with some ideas. So I got a little notebook out. I still have it here somewhere. And I started jotting down ideas for a dissertation topic. Mm -hmm. And I put a whole bunch of BART stuff on that, that list. I was a big, I'm, I still am. I love reading, wrestling with Carl Bart. He's become a theological companion uh, to me over the years. A lot of things I don't like about him uh, and, and about his work, but there's a lot of things I find, can continue to find him to be uh, kind of a, a sparring partner, but also an, an inspiration. So I wrote all of these BART ideas down in this notebook. And then as an afterthought, I wrote down something on Pannenberg, just because it would be nice to have something different there. Something besides Bart. <laughs> if any, yeah, yeah, yeah. One something, <laughs> just one thing, right? And then I also kind of as a further after, it was the PS and then the PSS, I wrote down Eberhard Jungel on the sacraments. So I get together with John, I get out of the car and we meet. And sure enough, he asked me, you know, what do you want to study? And uh, I, I went down my list and I started going down and through those BART projects and he just went, nope, 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 nope. At one point he said that one of his own students was doing one of the ones that I put down. And then believe it or not, I said one and he said, no, I actually, I'm writing on that topic right now, which <laughs> was kind of horrifying. He didn't want to do anything on Pannenberg. When we got to that Jungle project, he paused for a minute and he said, that's your topic. And in one of those rare cases, usually you you shift around a few times during your dissertation. Your your at least the early years, you shift your topics a bit. I didn't go through that. I had my topic pretty much set in stone before I even applied. Now I shifted around on the outline and my approach 
probably two dozen times when the topic was set in stone and that's what I ended up writing on. And then as one typically does, you continue, you've, you've done all of this work um, to study a, a particular person or a particular topic and you end up kind of stockpiling a lot of things. And I, I've sure. kept on um, wrestling with, with Jungel uh, since then. Mm -hmm. um, so we've mentioned a few other theologians already. You know, we've mentioned the, you know, contemporaries of, uh, Jungle, who are, who are big time names or bigger time, you could say Bart, Boltmann, um, as interlocutors also of Jungle. Um, I believe, um, I, th I think you said he personally knew both and that each had some kind of influence on him. Um, now, I like in your book, Guide to the uh, Perplexed, how you say that scholars, especially in the Anglosphere, who have written or presented overviews of Jungle and his theology have often spoke of these influences as if Jungle took a piece from this theologian and a piece from that one and sort of just fused or piecemealed something together. And I like how you say that that isn't quite the best approach uh, 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 to Jungle. And what, uh, what were, I guess, uh, specifically, what were, though, the influences from these two, two guys, from Barton Bolpon? Um, and uh, because I, they're usually influential in general in the 20th century, but how did how did Boltman and Bart kind of find their way in, in, in influencing Jungle? Um, yeah, that, oh, go ahead. I, I was just I'm actually personally curious because I, I've read a lot of Boltman and Bart, but not a, a lot of Jungle. So I'm curious myself. Um, sure. Well, it, there are a couple of different ways to, to answer that question. I mean, one way would would be to say that, well, they influenced Jungle enormously, just like they influenced pretty much every theologian studying in in Germany in particular, but but also demonstrably um, in England and in North America during the 1950s and the 1960s when Jungle was going through um, learning. That was when Jungle cut his teeth theologically, late 1950s, early 1960s. And Bart and Boltmann, and Bart was the most famous theologian in the world. Boltmann, arguably the most famous New Testament theologian in the world. Their work had a profound and lasting impact. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the best way to think about it would be to kind of, I, I've, I, 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 I use this analogy loosely and for fun, but it would kind of be like, you know, go back to the 19, uh, late 1960s and early 1970s and think about what was going on in popular music and and everyone had the rolling stones and the beatles and some other group you know beach boys so on mm -hmm. in the background somewhere to what they were doing these enormous huge influences that sort of cast a shadow they were innovators in a way and they were doing things in theology new testament studies that no one had ever done for uh, before so it would be impossible to be a, a creative innovative young theologian during that time who wants to um, continue the conversation in a way expand it and not draw upon um, Bart and Boltmann. So that would be one thing to say. And I think I, I kind of spoke to that in my book, uh, The Guide for the Perplexed, tried to argue that rather than, and this you alluded uh, to this in your question, rather than speaking about Jungle's influences as he just kind of took 
this from Bart and this from Boltmann and this over here from Heidegger and this over here from Hegel. And he sprinkled a little Luther in and then you get this, you know, kind of right. mixture of stuff. I don't think that's the best way to think about it. I think there, it, the better way is just to realize that if you're a student in Berlin in the late 1950s and 1960s, this is the stuff that's in the air. This is the raw material that influences the kind of questions you ask, the kind of solutions you seek, the resources, technology. That's the better way to go about thinking about um, influences. Uh, to, part of that is my beef with the kind of Anglophone scholarship, the Anglophone secondary literature that says that, well, the first thing you got to do when studying, they're all the same, right? I did one. It's Eberhard Jungel on blank. So typically a secondary study in humanities is blank person writing on blank topic. And typically the first part of that is talking about influences and trying to trace all of those things down. I have a beef with that. I don't think that's, I think that's bogus. I don't mm. think that that accurately reflects the intellectual development of an individual thinker, whether they're a theologian or a, an English uh, literature uh, scholar or writer or, or whatever. We don't think actively by grabbing this book and taking this thought and marrying it together with this over here. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. So, so part of the reason why I've, I've kind of, you know, picked a fight with that influence language is because of that right there. It really is much more complicated, and mm -hmm. Jungle's own theological development proves that. Now, having said all of that, uh, Drew, um, the influence, uh, if, if I can return to that language, right. even after like, giving is a, there a an accent, Is there a Boltmanian or Bardian accent detectable in uh in Jungle, I guess would be yeah. definitely, absolutely. <laughs> right. to, to there, you cannot read his work otherwise. He wrote um, extensively throughout his career on both Bart and Boltmann, and it is clear. And it's not just that there's this one thing. It's not just that he took Bart's doctrine of revelation, for instance, mm -hmm. and then he married it together with uh, Boltmann's program of de demythologization. It's that it's it's the it's vast parts of the two programs become part of the dna as it were so much so that it's really impossible to kind of pick one or two things i've written uh, for a, a a blackwell companion to carl bart i wrote a piece on on jungle and bart and it was delightful to write they had a deep personal relationship that lasted for about a decade from when uh, Jungel showed up uh, to study at, at sit in on Bart's doctoral seminar back in in the late 1950s, all the way up to Bart's death in 1968. The two knew each other and stayed in touch with each other. And there are it, it's push and pull. There are things that Jungel was typically as you get to know someone who's a senior. There are things that you agree with them, and then there are things where you're at loggerheads with each other. Mm -hmm. And there are things in Jungle's theology where he deeply resonates with Bart. And then there are other things where he's fine to kind of go in a different direction because he's a different person. He sees things differently. He lives in a different world and in a different time. And I think that's true of Boltmann as well. They knew each other. They stayed in correspondence with each other all the way up uh, to uh, Boltmann's death about a decade after Bart. And there are there's a push and pull that goes on there. It's just part of the world 
that that Jung will occupied as a young theologian who first was impressionable, drawing in all of this stuff and then leaving his own mark. Yeah. Um, so I want to focus on one of his Jungle's writings more closely, because um, I think it may benefit our listeners and um, me, even though I do attempt to read German. Uh, <laughs> one of his one of his untranslated works, uh, I was hoping you could maybe speak to a little bit, um, one that was very, I guess, seminal for his career. It was his dissertation, uh, Paulus und Jesus, um, which is the title, English tri- English translation that of course meaning paul and jesus um and the whole question of you know because i know that just um in, generally in you've seen this in critical scholarship you've seen this even in popular uh in popular discourse of a supposed wedge between of course paul and and then jesus and uh questions of continuity and discontinuity and all that and um i was uh wondering uh and and i guess it is kind of a continued theme even to this day and i'm curious as to how this dissertation maybe addressed that tension or that question um but also i mean really what was it generally arguing um you know what was the dissertation yeah and it's interesting you you picked this book because it is the the one of the four major monographs that jung wrote that never uh got translated even though um, at Moore Zebeck in Germany, the publisher, mm-hmm. it's in its sixth edition. So oh, really? it continues to sell. It's never been translated into English. I doubt it ever will be because there's a sense in which it's a it's very much a work of its time. It's the kind of book that could only have been written in the early 1960s. Um, I've called it in print the quintessential, perhaps, publication of something called the New Hermeneutic, Mm -hmm. which was this approach to this question that it deals with that was very much in vogue in the 1950s and early 1960s, but then sort of fell out of the scene and has never returned. So what is it? What's it all about? It's an old question. It's a question that's that um, has dominated scholarship um, at the at the borders, as it were, of New Testament studies and Christian theology. It's dominated, especially in Germany, for about 150, 160 years. And it's the question of, well, when, you know, what are the origins of, of the Christian faith? Um, are they with the the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who wandered about Galilee and Jerusalem as an itinerant rabbi who taught this or that? How do we understand that person, Jesus of Nazareth? And is he, in fact, um, the origins of the faith? Is he who the later tradition actually said he was? When we read Paul, clearly there's a theological Christ. We're not talking about all the stuff that Paul never talks about Jesus's public ministry, stuff that he does He talks about the Lord Christ who is present in faith to the church, to those who believe, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship between those, if we can think for a moment abstractly and separate the Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who walked around and did stuff, and the Christ of faith, the one who Christians even to this day claim to be the risen and active Lord, how do we understand the relationship between the two? Mm -hmm. In German scholarship at the end of the the 19th century, there was a tendency to draw a steep wedge Mm -hmm. between those 
those two figures and to say that what happened is that when the New Testament was written, a later tradition did violence to the real historical man by reading him through through a theological lens. And so what we have to do is try to separate ourselves from that theological lens to go back and find the real Jesus of history. And so there were all of these works. It's now called, quote, the first quest for the historical Jesus. It's all of this stuff that emerged during the last half, roughly, of the 19th century, mainly in German scholarship, where they were looking to get away from the theology of the New Testament and subsequent Christian tradition and get back to the real man, Jesus of Nazareth, and figure out who that guy was. Mm -hmm. Assuming all along the way that all of that stuff that Paul and later theologians did was to add this extra gloss that's really not helpful if what we're after is the historical man. Mm -hmm. This lasted for about half a century. It kind of culminated in the work of the famous Albert Schweitzer, who argued that, well, sure, this is all well and good, but even when one of these German scholars looks at the Jesus of history, they're importing their own presuppositions, philosophical and theological and otherwise, onto the study of history. And so for Schweitzer, we're just in this sort of irreducible um, just cul-de-sac. We're just running in circles trying to find this person. So then Schweitzer, of course, goes on to argue for his own way of understanding the historical Jesus, kind of adding to the very tradition that he's criticizing. Then for a long period during the early 20th century, that quest, that desire to go back, the need to go back and find the supposed real Jesus of history, separate from the theological tradition, kind of fell by the wayside. You don't see it as much, especially in Bart mm -hmm. and in the, the theologians who Bart inspired. But then in the, the 1950s, students of Boltmann actually argued, uh, and I think Boltmann is kind of a, a complicated figure in all of this because Boltmann on one hand was a very keen observer about how traditions of theology emerged during uh, the, the New Testament period, his form criticism, which is the, the, the kind of New Testament scholarship that he essentially spearheaded, remains very significant for understanding what went on in early Christianity, the formulation of a specific literary tradition. But it was his students who thought at least that they were kind of rebelling against their, their doctoral supervisor, mainly Ernst Kaseman, but then also Ernst Fuchs, who was Jungle's doctoral supervisor, and Gerhard Abeling, the theologian. They kind of uh, rebelled against Boltmann and argued that, well, we've got to somehow draw a line of continuity. Mm -hmm. all, if, if, the, if the first phase, the 19th century, was drawing a wedge between the Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ of faith, and then Bart and demonstrably Boltmann, although that remains a, a matter of debate. But just let's take the argument. They didn't care about it for 50 years. Well, now, said Kaseman, Fuchs, Abeling, and then later Jungle, we need to find a way to draw a bridge between what Paul was doing and what Jesus was doing. Okay, so that's the background. 
what Jung will actually. But, but interestingly, oh, I'm sorry to cut you because I know you're sure. about to get to a really good part. But but I know from my studies, probably my studies with you, that kind of the reason why Bart and Boltman didn't really care so much about the question of continuity and discontinuity is because of that cul-de-sac sure. <laughs> critique. No, it's, that's it's precisely it. Right. Um, which I get, but also uh, at the end of the day, Jesus is a person who existed in our time and space. So there is that, I mean, you know, for, for any, there's just that natural curiosity, but, um, but go, I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you are about to get into how Jung will now kind of fits into this. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, what you just said right there, I mean, I agree with every word that you said. I mean, on one hand, there's a sense where you can sort of get lost in the historical <laughs> pursuit, but yet Jesus was one who walked among us. There was a, an irreducible particularity of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And if Boltmann could be criticized and even Bart of avoiding that that question of particularity, I think that's a, an ongoing issue with Boltmann's thought more than it is with Bart's thought. But if that's the criticism, sure, I'm all for, um, and one can you know easily understand why in the 1950s and 60s this was championed. Let's let's figure out a way to keep the theological Christ and find the rootedness of, of the theological Christ in the actual historical Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, what they came up with was a bit odd, and this is this new hermeneutic. Um, hermeneutical theology was in the air at the time. Uh, Martin Heidegger's works were seminal after his turn to language and the understanding of, of the need for rooting philosophy and phenomenology in the way, that, in an understanding of the way that language works among speakers and hearers. All of that stuff is going on in the air right now. Uh, Boltman and Bart, in their own different ways, had contributed to theology's hermeneutical interests, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff is going on in the air. And what um, specifically Fuchs and Abeling stumble onto is this idea that what connects the tradition, the theological tradition, let's just focus on Paul, Paul's preaching the, of the kerygma, of the gospel of the risen Lord Christ there, and then the actual man, Jesus of Nazareth, as he wandered about, is something that goes on in language. It's a hermeneutical issue. Specifically, okay. it's proclamation. It's preaching. Jesus, then, is the one who wandered about preaching the imminent arrival of the kingdom that arrived in the proclamation that he gave. He mm -hmm. preached the kingdom, and when he preached, he announced right now before you, the kingdom is at hand before his contemporaries. Likewise, Paul preached the gospel, preached the message of justification and reconciliation, preached a word that changed the lives of the hearers who heard it, gave up everything that they had to live actually in opposition to their society in a church and mm -hmm. commune together. So what Fuchs and Abeling and then later on Jungle argue is that that's the glue that holds everything together. So would Fuchs and Abeling and, and Jungle say that um, it's the same kerygma? I, I guess I don't know. It, is it the same? Uh, is it has it developed in Paul or is it, is it is the core the same of the message or the, what's the same is what happens. The message itself is different and Jesus is preaching of the kingdom of God is, historically speaking, different from 
Paul's early apostolic charisma, the, the content and the message is different because mm -hmm. the times are, there's a gap, of course, of two decades. Jesus is among his contemporaries preaching the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Paul is among his own contemporaries preaching the gospel about the risen Christ. The content is different, but the, what's the same is that they're both, and this is right out of Paulus and Yesus, this dissertation, they are the same because they are language events or word events. Okay. Something happens in the world where God comes in and interrupts the status quo, the status quo of people living under imperial rule, living among powers and principalities. You can see why this would appeal to someone like Jungel, who was writing his doctoral dissertation in Berlin, right mm. before the wall came up. The, there's a power and principality around him at that moment where people are enslaved to the untruth of Stalinism. Mm -hmm. And he saw, right, that for uh, the contemporaries of Jesus and Paul, it was the same thing. It's powers and principalities that are dominating the world. And what is needed is something to speak from God. Speak from above, into that so status to speak. Quo. Yeah, so to speak, right? Yeah. And so there's something very potent about all of that. Now, of course, you know, as time moves on, that solution, you know, is that really the glue? Is that really, you know, what? Well, sure. you have to have a lot of philosophy. You have to buy into a way of understanding the way language works, the way sure. um, it, the, the existentialist philosophy that's sort of a ballast kind of framing and holding the whole thing fell out of fashion. And so within a couple of decades, this was no longer seen to be the brilliant idea that it once was. But if you could go back in time, even here in the States to the late 1960s, stuff is coming out of Germany that's getting translated, not, not Palace and Yesus, but a lot of other stuff got translated during that time period that made a huge impact on young uh, theologians and preachers mm -hmm. here in the States. Yeah. And it's so hard for us to, I mean, even like if there's certain aspects of the theology or philosophy of, that was in vogue, uh, even if we're critical of it, it's, it's, you're right. You can understand it if you had been in the setting of which it uh, arose and in which sure. it wasn't a large part addressing. So that's very helpful. I, um, you know, I, I knew that there was like what you said, there was kind of that wedge um, that was kind of a tendency of a lot of scholarship and um it, it part of me just like uh, there's an immediate knee-jerk react like oh you know no you know i i, I want to see paul and jesus in a perfect continuity and of course i think though that there's been um later i guess trends in biblical scholarship i think of like david wenham uh, wenham who wrote maybe the 90s and i think even larry hurtado to some degree or that, that tried to push back against the that wedge by arguing really just you know the the number of years between paul's actual ministry and the resurrection is not too long and there's a question on if there was uh uh if it was if if it worked at itself out in perfect steps of well there was jesus in his immediate circle then there's the jewish christians then there's the gentile it's a little messier than that i think that was like larry Hurtado's argument so yeah um and my thing is like well the gospels are written in 60s 70s 80s 90s um if you want to pause it at that late, late even but paul's writing earlier so it's like that's kind of my kind of my knee jerk sure. uh, but i totally get um what you're saying about 
that kind of hermeneutical theology movement um, because it's it's really working with the criticisms that had long been in the year, but tr- connecting Jesus and Paul, um, but but making an honest maybe effort to connecting them. So yeah, I think you know it, it's interesting going back to our earlier earlier discussion about influences, right, and about stuff being in the air. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense in which Pallas and Jesus, and then the 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 whole movement of the new hermeneutic. The whole thing, it, it can only take place in a way, in Germany, mm-hmm. in in the in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Yeah, it's it's totally a product of its time. It's all of this stuff that had been in the air in philosophy and theology, in some cases problems that had been around by that point for almost a century, but new innovations in philosophy and theology that allow for a new way to approach um, that that question, that set of questions. If you look at someone, you know, you mentioned Hurtado that, and, and, and Wenham, those are great, you know, later developments here. Of course, we're living in a time that is dominated uh, by uh, N.T. Wright and by the solution to this nest of issues that that he has proposed, the new perspective on Paul, a way of understanding who Paul was and what Paul was really talking about that has changed a lot of this. That too, there are there are philosophical and theological winds that are blowing when N.T. Wright, you know, comes onto the scene and others. I'm just picking picking him as a representative that everyone knows of sort of new trends in biblical scholarship on some of these questions. All of that stuff is going to happen because of a, a particular kind of development that takes place beforehand. Mm-hmm. Same with Jungle. So, um, and you mentioned how this is very much a product of its time. So now Jungle passed away very recently. Um, yeah. I mean, like maybe five weeks ago, maybe yeah. about. And now a lot of his important contributions took place um, in, in, in really that time period we've been discussing. And they really kind of, in many ways, belong to that period um, of a fascinating, but ultimately maybe bygone era. Um, so what has his activity looked like? And I mean, he's, he's, been alive up until very recently what is the past 40 50 years what has his activity been i mean you were writing your dissertation on a living person which doesn't i mean that's not i don't know how common that is but you know kind of odd what was he up to what was he up to (laughs) you know yeah well there are a lot of i i don't i i've i've never uh, tried to argue in print that there are sort of distinct phases i think that jungle was a, a a generative innovative thinker who was sort of always working always pushing new boundaries it's one of the things i greatly admire uh, about him i I'd never have thought that there were a, there there was some, you know, moment that took place in 1980 or something where he just sort of kicked out everything that he had been working on and started some new trajectory. Mm-hmm. Instead, there it seems like everything that he did was constantly living and changing and moving in terms of his his uh, his thought. So yeah. when I wrote on the sacramental theology stuff. There's really it's it's not just he did something for a while and then changed at one point. There's this everything that he wrote kind of falls on this continuity and there are changes along the way. He was developing his thinking. He was restless. 
-hmm. He never said, I've got this one idea down and I'm going to stick with it to the get-go. There are these constant changes and revolutions that take place throughout his career on all sorts of issues. So is there anything new that like new for him in like the eighties and nineties? Yeah. Yeah. was there like I mean like one example of something because sure. I'm just, I'm so unfamiliar with it that's why I ask and I imagine absolutely start to, um, well one thing to say would be that that the stuff that he started doing in the 1960s with Palestinians and then this book on Bark that he wrote later on that's famously translated God's being is in becoming that's a research trajectory that moves forward and kind of culminates in his most famous work God is the mystery of the world which he published in Germany in 1976. Okay. So there's kind of an early decade, and it's best not to think of it as a as a phase as much as it's one trajectory of research that culminates in a particular work where he kind of sorts out what he wants to say. Mm-hmm. But then in the late 1970s and early 1980s, he became involved in the ecumenical movement, not directly. He was never invited to be on uh, an international dialogue commission or a working group or to represent the church in an ecumenical context, but he took keen interest in this question that was really burning at the end of the 20th century about whether um, historical Christian divisions could be overcome by dialogue and theological work. Interesting. And he, his, his approach to all of that, I've said in print in a, on a couple of occasions, is, is kind of like a provocateur or a gadfly. He, he strongly believes that there are good reasons why Protestants are Protestants of this or that sort, and they're not Catholic, even though he wants to, 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 to encourage the idea that we should be talking to one another and doing some serious theological work together. So he, there's a really starting at the end of the 1970s, going all the way up through to, to when he stopped writing in the early 2000s. A lot of stuff came out. I mean, hordes of it. Most famously, his book, Justification, which is his last major monograph, which is an ecumenical book. It's not a doctrine of justification per se. He's not sitting down trying to work out just for students how to think about the doctrine of justification. The whole context, everything is about the joint declaration of the doctrine of, on the doctrine of justification that the Catholic uh, Roman Catholic Church and the uh, World, Lutheran World Federation signed in 1999. That's the every single thing about that book is about this ecumenical dispute that had picked up for three decades and terminated with that document. It's all it's all about how to think ecumenically about differences that we have with one another our specific streams of theological thinking, how to place those ecumenical questions. And uh, he worked on that stuff for the best part of three decades. And there's all kinds of stuff that's been translated and even a lot of really great stuff that has not been translated that came out of those. We're in a different state uh, in the ecumenical movement right now, but this was a time period when the ecumenical movement was thriving and great dialogues were taking places Mm -hmm. between the churches and making a lot of news. And he contributed as a commentator on ecumenical theology during that time. And uh, I think his, frankly, I think his, uh, his, his work on that, on that score has been underappreciated. He wrote some great stuff. I was about to say that would, to me, this, I didn't know about that. That that seems like the, if I were to go now and read like, 
pick of the first thing to read from him would be something along those lines. I think the kind of the ecumenism from the 60s up until the 90s was really fascinating because it was it was characterized by a, a rigorous discussions. And so yeah. I'd be really curious to, <laughs> to read his take on the JDD. Uh, uh, Jay, I think is that the, the joint, uh, yeah, the joint the, declaration, the joint declaration. Um, I'd be curious to read his take on that. Do you know what it was? Was it, I probably wasn't, so keep, probably can't sum it up as it was good or bad, but well, I mean, I'll just say it real quickly. What he actually with Gerhard Abeling led a revolt oh, of okay. 180 theologians, professional theologians, and biblical scholars teaching at the German universities, he led a revolt, a very public revolt that was in the major newspaper in Germany against the early first draft of the Joint Declaration of the Doctrine of Justification. Well, then there was this famous annex that was put to the JDDJ a couple of, I think it was about six or eight months later, clarifying certain points, and eventually Jungel became a supporter of the Joint Declaration. But he was part of an early rebellion against the Joint Declaration. You can read all about this in his book, Justification, in the, the different forwards, because it went through several editions, and he was writing forwards to these editions. Okay. I think there are three of them in the book. And you can read about the context of all of this, where he's kind of going back and forth. You know, well, have we given too much of the store away, right? We've given away the store in agreeing with this document that's kind of the first take but then okay well if we can say with these qualifications that this is what justification is all about i'll sign off on it so if you look you can kind of follow his logic here wow. the big issue i'll just say one thing here is the question of whether for protestant theology justification is the technical term is criteriological Really? Um, one other way to say it, this was what my doctoral supervisor used to talk about is in, in other contexts is, is justification a document or doc, a document? Is it a doctrine that is distributed throughout the loci, throughout the, the different theological topics, or is it something that has its unique place and role? And Jungle argues that it is criteriological or distributive, that for Protestants, it is the doctrine that has a plays a determinative role where the church other, stands or falls on really. it, it stands or falls right so he takes that hard uh, as it were lutheran approach here and uh and argues against the joint declaration on that score and then kind of you know kind of comes back to the other side because he felt like um the the dialogue partners continued to add enough uh, you know, of these disclaimers in the form they of took his appendix. concerns to heart enough for him. In a way. Yeah, and, and I'm not even sure if it, I mean, if you're on on the dialogue itself, you know that Jungle is out there writing this stuff, but I'm not even sure that when the dialogue, you know, kind of went back to reconvene, if it was Jungle in particular that they were like listening to. I think it was more concerns that had come in. Ecumenical documents have to be received by the respective churches and by others um, in, in the Christian faith. And as that process of reception goes on, they tend to go through, you know, some revisions and annexes. And I think that it was just a natural part of the process. But Jungel was definitely on the side saying, hey, you know, you, you, we, we can't sacrifice our identity for the sake of an ecumenical gain uh, you know frankly drew i think there's a there's a certain sense we're looking back on it after 20 years 
does anyone really and truly care about the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification? I'm a Lutheran. I've been a Lutheran for a long time, and I don't, no one ever talks about it in my context. I think Jungle may have actually been right. We need to, you know, if we're going to do this sort of thing, we need to get it right because at the end of the day, the impact of it is going to be, you know, kind of, kind of limited in its scope. Yeah. So we don't need to give away too much, mm-hmm. as it were. I think that was his argument. A lot of these um, ecumenical statements, I mean, I, I, on one end, I, I kind of with Jungle, I think Christians need to talk with one, another, with one another, have dialogue. Christ wills his followers to be one. But so many, I mean, some of have happened in my lifetime. I, I mean, I was, bar, I, was, I was in the Episcopal Church by the time the, EL, the call to common mission went through. And, um, but yeah, you don't really see, you don't really see these, uh, lived out. I mean, that was actually probably one of the bigger ones. Cause that actually did lead to some, you know, I went to the joint, the Episcopal church ELCA had, they merged to their seminary or they, they partnered to their seminaries for some time, you know, and that's where I went. Yeah. But I, I keep outside of that. Um, I don't know how many of these statements have kind of been, um, you know, what, what their ultimate, um, effect was, but limited. Yeah. Like you'd said. So, um, kind of like we're kind of getting uh close to the end of the show but i had the the burning question was um so what are some critiques or qualms that you have with jungles because you've you I mean you you open you're open about this uh, especially in the guide to the perplex that you have some um what are some that you <laughs> some some uh critiques i guess are just like uh things in 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 jungles theology and thought that you're just not with yeah you know that's a great question drew and i guess one thing i would just say before i i I give away any concrete um answer would just be it i don't really i I, i'm i'm not one to quote critique unquote someone like Eberhard jungle because the more i study the more i wrestle with his work and then with bart and with I've had to think a lot of late about John Webster, my late doctoral supervisor, to try to figure out what he was up to. Or I think about even figures who I, people who I know today, um, Mm -hmm. who I admire. The reality is, is that we're all going through our lives, our existences in in whatever course we happen to be on. Mm -hmm. And, And theological existence necessarily unfolds in that context and not otherwise Mm -hmm. and more often than not the reason why we end up disagreeing with this or that person about this or that thing is because we just live in a different time and in a different place um i I tend to think that that's kind of how things go i mean even when it comes down to i got a friend over here who's uh you know as it were a fundamentalist of this sort and another person over here who's a progressive of this sort the reason why one is a fundamentalist and the other is a progressive is because of life context more than anything else i don't want to completely relativize all of that i know some people especially the fundamentalist over here would probably go now hold on a minute there's absolute truth and you either believe in this confessional document or in this way of understanding scripture or you're off the page but i think that the even the reason why we come to those conclusions is just because of the way our lives are lived. I think that's what it means to do and work and uh, think these days. So then having said all of that, I mean, when I, when well, I think no, about- you're right. No, thank you for, I know you're about to get into the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the juicy part, but I mean, that is so true. And I think part of being um, 
Christians, part of being Christians, kind of is extending the grace to one another. And so, and it's so funny how in, in Christian discourse, especially theological discussions, uh, there's there's so much lack of charity. <laughs> so yeah. that's why and that's not what I'm trying to get, you know, um, that's not what I'm trying to get out of you. And I know you wouldn't do that anyway, but just, uh, um, yeah, I mean, just some things you wrestle with and you really wrestle with, I guess, with Jungle. Um, yeah, you, you know, we talked about earlier the whole palace and Yesus thing and this mm-hmm. new hermeneutic, this approach to understanding the relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and Christ of faith. And it comes down to they are connected by interruptive word events that sort of, you know, zap down. It's Jesus preaching and things just, whoa, you know, mm-hmm. God is here. The kingdom is present among you. And likewise, Paul, you know, preaching the gospel of justification the early apostolic kerygma, and boom, you know, it just sort of happens. On one hand, A, I understand why someone who is working in the 1950s and 1960s would draw those conclusions. That the question itself is a question that's still in the air. It's never been a burning question for me. Um, It's not a question of scholarship that I wrestled with in seminary or apart from trying to figure Jungle out in my doctoral studies. You know, this is not what we're sort of thinking about sort of over um, in an in an overdone way as it was in the 50s and 60s and then the attractiveness of figuring out how to resolve that problem in this sort of ecstatic language event mm-hmm. that's something that i that that i in a way it's it's something i can understand and i certainly understand being a lutheran why this would be attractive um, because we believe that things do actually happen in preaching that when you actually preach when you um, you, you are found to be ascending the pulpit and have to say a word of scripture that there's something that goes on there. That's not just, I'm going to, you know, lecture at people for a few minutes, but that things can, events can take place. Mm-hmm. Lives can be changed. So I get all of that. But I think when I look at Jungle, I go, well, gosh, he really, he really rides that horse all the way home and all the way up <laughs> to the very last thing that he wrote he's talking about um it, it it there's a there's an arc and towards the end of the career when he or when he moves into that ecumenical stuff he talks about it less and less but the structure of the interruptive word and how it functions is still there kind of all the way to the end mm-hmm. i think that's not for me i i i, I would probably uh, in my own dissertation and then in things that i've written since then I've wrestled with what you lose, right? When you emphasize so much that God speaks to us in these interruptive word events, right? You lose. Very dramatic. It's a very dramatic uh, tenor to that. You know, it's a dramatic. It's God sort of. It's it's my life context. My status quo is moving in this one way, and boom. Again, if you're thinking about Jungle's own life narrative, you go, well, no wonder he he is attracted to this because that's how he encountered the church and the gospel to begin with as something that spoke a a word of hope in this Stalinistic hell that he was in. Right. And boom, you see, you can understand why this, you know, makes so much of a lasting impact. Um, What I would in my own theological work, such as it is, and I'll never ever be uh, within Jungle's league, even remotely as a theologian, but in my own theological work, it's understanding um, traditions and continuities and trying to understand how things work over the course of actual time 
there's something very ordinary actually about theological work and about uh, about Christian existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think you lose some of that if you emphasize the kind of ecstatic um, existentialist character of theology that you get in someone like Jungle or Abeling or Fuchs or Kazeman. Um, as much as I deeply admire all of them, and I really do, and learn from them, there's something kind of the ordinariness yeah. of 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 the of the faith and and of theological existence. I recently read; it was a couple of years ago. I read one of my favorite books is by the Catholic theologian Paul Griffiths, um, and it's called "What Is It for the Practice of Catholic Theology?" Um, it, and it's a great book. But he he talks about th- there's a sense in which he's kind of if Jungle is trying to do theology, as they used to say, from above, and mm-hmm. talk about the kind of transcendental nature of the word that interrupts us, Griffiths is kind of doing a little Catholic theology from below, and mm-hmm. just trying to talk about the, just the very natural things. Well, what do you do if you're going to be a theologian? Well, you got to go to school somewhere, you get <laughs> right. influenced by the conversations that are going on, and you're where you grew up and who your dad was and all of this stuff influences you as well. And all of that stuff is just as important for theological existence as the interruptions and the surprises and all of that stuff. It's all of it. Well, sometimes it's a relief just to bring it down to earth, dial it back a little bit. Just dial it back a little bit, right? Just dial it back. There's an importance for a good sermon, but then we, we sometimes, at least in my own a tradition we preach these great sermons that that have these sort of interruptive impacts on things but we also need to catechize we need to yeah. take people through and teach them things that would be i think you know the for me the main thing whereas i read jungle that i had this sort of gut reaction to i like this and i can resonate with it and understand why it's there mm-hmm. but there's something about it that i kind of want to push back against yeah. I hear you. I mean, as in my own preaching experience, I'm sometimes drawn to that interruptive as just uh, because maybe of the the sudden joy and hope one can find in in something that interrupts in a good way. But I've sometimes I've preached these sermons where I've I've gone for that. And afterward, I just felt I don't know, I felt a little bit drained, but also felt like I like questioning if it had the effect. And then just led to kind of just a little bit of uh, anxiety about um, was it could I could I have done something ordinary (laughs) so you know um, no that's a really good uh, thank you for that that was a really good um, I enjoyed hearing your your why you're not 100% comfortable with that because I I get that I can relate to I can relate to it so yeah but well um I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been a great conversation. Um, I'm really excited to hear, um, or just to, just to get, I don't get, hear too much feedback on the show, but I'm excited for the listeners to hear the episode. I know it'll be a popular one. Um, you touched on a lot of great, interesting things about a very interesting person um, yeah. who uh, we could all really afford to, to know a little bit more about. So uh, thank you, Dave, and um, God bless. And uh we'll uh we'll 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 stay in touch so thank you drew thanks for the opportunity to come on here and and chat about jungle and uh yeah it's been a lot of fun yeah all right dave god bless thank you take care